Zachary Bartel is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement AT&T Studios. Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. The Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil. And uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there. They're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of HarperCollins. And the 2015 Carol Award for debut novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. In 2015, my friend Ted Cluck and I wrote a book together called The Gut Check Guide to Publishing. Subtitle, What Works, What Doesn't, and Why to Do It Your Way. Uh, the first half of the book was about indie publishing, the history of it, how to do it well, how to do it really, really crappy, and we draw on a lot of our experience together. And the second half is about how to navigate the world of traditional publishing. I'm going to be sharing different aspects of this book here and there through the rest of this podcast, and today I want to share a little section called Becoming an Editor Whisperer. Being an editor whisperer is a very important part of successfully navigating uh, traditional publishing. Ted has probably done a better job than I have, and he wrote a little bit more, especially of the first half of this chapter, but together we share our wisdom and in true gut check fashion, also share uh, some snarky humor. So I hope you enjoy Becoming an Editor Whisperer. If you decide to pursue traditional publishing, you'll have to work with an editor. Editors acquire your book, which is confusing, and they actually edit your book, meaning they send lots of comments on your writing, some of which you'll like and some of which you won't. Zach and I have compiled this handy guide to editors. These are character sketches compiled over many years of working with editors from a variety of different companies. Number one, your biggest fan. This is arguably the best kind of book editor you could possibly get. This editor thinks you're great, is afraid to mess with your work, and isn't afraid to let you know how great they think you are. I'll never forget the call I received from my acquisitions editor the day after I turned in my first book manuscript. I was on Kalamazoo Avenue in Lansing, Michigan, and it was snowing a little. He called and said, Ted, you nailed it. This is amazing. Do you know how many times that's happened since? Zero. See, crushed dreams. See, disillusionment. The point is that you want to work with this editor at some point in your career, just not your first time. Number two, your grandfather. This guy has been in the business for 120 years and got his start stapling together the mimeographed copies of Dwight Moody's newsletters, which he then sold out of the back of Dwight Moody's horse-drawn carriage. He wears short-sleeved dress shirts, and there are things in the chest pocket that include pens, a notebook, and one of those pen-like things you use to check the tire pressure in your car's tires. Aside, apparently Ted does not know what a tire gauge is called, but that's okay. He'll call you on the phone a lot because he doesn't, quote, do email and prefers to do things like make editorial queries awkwardly on the phone. All of that to say he's really grandfatherly. He won't get any of your pop culture references. He'll think your attempts at humor are unnecessary and your language will strike him as irreverent, even if you weren't trying to be irreverent. However, he's so nice that you won't push back and the result will be a book that sounds like it was written by a grandfather if that grandfather also occasionally references Mad Men. 
Note, the book will be your best-selling title to date. Number three, the frustrated wannabe author. I think this is most editors, to be honest. They got into the business because they majored in English, they love books, and as such, they want to write books. And maybe they even have. That said, they've discovered, like most of us do, that you can't make a living in writing without having a quote-unquote real job, and for them, their real job is editor. That said, they think they should be writing your book, and that attitude will show up in the pages and pages of notes they write to you after you turn in your manuscript. Notes that sound just a little too polished and sound like they're trying just a little too hard. This editor thinks that nobody is as clever as he is, and in fact, he thinks he would do a better job writing your book than you're doing. Things to never bring up to this editor. Their book ideas. Their published title that didn't sell. Things you need to convince the editor of that every good idea is slash was his. So, for example, if you don't want to make a particular change, you have to make him think it was his idea to not make the change. The way to deal with this editor. Be respectful and deferential. Thank him for the notes, even though what you want to do is beat him severely with a blunt object. Know that his smug air of superiority is just a defense mechanism, and resist the urge to respond with your own smug air of superiority. Number four, the guy with nothing to prove. This may be the best editor available, even better than your biggest fan. This editor is younger than your grandfather, but older than the guy who's young enough to be your kid. He's seen and done things in the business, no longer dreams of his own authorial stardom, and isn't intimidated by the idea that you might actually become a star one day. That said, this guy is really rare, because what he or she really is, is just someone with a cool, really likable personality, someone who has unloaded the rather large chip that usually resides right here points to shoulder. People like this are rare in life, and if you find one, make sure you do what you need to do to spend more time with him slash her. You'll find that the guy with nothing to prove will actually help your book. The finished product will be better, and the process won't be miserable. You'll end up writing him long, soul-bearing pieces of personal correspondence. He won't respond. Later, you'll find out that he died in a rare fishing accident, or more likely, retired, or even more likely, Move to another company without telling you, meaning that those long, soul-bearing pieces of correspondence are just, like, out there. Wow, that got really dark. Also, note to self, see what happened to those emails. Number five, your hipster buddy. You'll meet this editor at a conference in which you both sort of do that thing where you act like you're too good for the old stick-in-the-mud traditionalists in Christian publishing, and then you'll get a coffee or a beer and have a conversation where you sort of allude to the fact that you really want to change the industry, and he sort of alludes to the fact that he wants to acquire all of your books so that you can change the industry together. After the coffee or beer meeting, you'll call your wife and say something like, I finally met the editor who gets me. Excitement will set in. What will happen is that maybe you'll do a book or two together, wherein you'll discover that he's the same sort of old company-line-towing traditionalist everyone else is. He's just wearing cooler clothes and a longer beard and listens to cooler bands. Because when push comes to shove, he doesn't really want to change the industry. What he really wants to do is to keep his job, because he has several kids and a wife, and let's be honest, most people do really want to keep their jobs because it costs a fortune and a half to live in Wheaton or Colorado Springs. All of that to say... He'll get your hopes up about changing the industry, and then it won't happen. Number six, the kid who's young enough to be your kid. This editor just graduated from, insert one, Moody, Taylor, Seattle Pacific, if liberal, Wheaton, and is just super stoked to have an office with a phone and a travel budget to go to awesome conferences like, insert, Gospel Coalition, if conservative, Wild Goose Festival, if liberal. This editor is 22. This editor is unsure whether he or she should go to graduate school. He or she should. 
This editor was hired by, insert name of publisher, because he or she interviews really well and wrote a really amazing essay about something that caught the eye of someone. Also, this editor was hired because he or she will work for really cheap and he or she has romantic fantasies about working in the city and buying a pantsuit and taking the train and having meetings. Subtext. It will be six months before this editor is back in graduate school, so don't get too attached. Number seven. The lady who wants more male authors. This editor works on an all-female editorial team, speaks almost exclusively of, quote, nurturing readers, engaging the female reader demographic, and, quote, cute book covers, but says she really wants to tap into the male readership potential of Christian books. She'll try her darndest to live up to this mission, but will eventually tire of holding it all in and spectacularly bomb all bridges between you and said publisher, citing your lack of nurturing readers, engaging the female demographic, and embracing cute book covers as your primary failures. How to deal with this editor? Avoid. Number eight. The guy who's on his way out in a couple of weeks. The turnover in this business is unbelievable, meaning that the guy who's acquiring your book today might be leaving to work for another publisher next week, meaning that they'll be having cake for him in the break room and somebody will write an intra-office memo or press release that says things like, quote, we're really happy for name, who will take his wealth of industry experience to company, where he'll be a great asset heading up the Christian calendars and ancillary plush toys division. Downside, the guy who acquired your book is gone. Upside, he may be designing and launching the line of action figures and plush toys which are releasing concurrently with your novel, which you later sold to other company. Three tactics for dealing with difficult editorial notes. The first time you receive that email or that thick manila envelope containing your precious manuscript marked up with ruthless red pen or pixels, you'll have a mini breakdown, but you'll get over it. And as you read through your editor's suggested changes, you'll probably be mentally or physically dividing them into three categories. One, of course, how did I not see that? Two, I don't see the need for this change, but I don't really care enough to put up a fight. And three, I'd rather jump naked into a pool full of broken glass, lemon juice, and angry bees. You'll probably have a helpful friend who will remind you that it's still your book and you should have final say as to what it says. And ultimately, your friend is right to a certain degree, but don't ever say that to your editor. Instead, use one of these three tactics. 1. Hitchcock's Nipple There's an urban legend that says when Alfred Hitchcock sent the final cut of his now-classic Psycho to the censors, they sent it right back, telling him it was unacceptable as it stood. What had them so scandalized? Not the semi-graphic murders. No, it was, the story says, a few frames where Vera Miles' nipple was visible. Recut it, they demanded, or it's going nowhere. So what did Hitchcock do? Apparently, he just put the reel in a drawer for a couple of weeks, then sent the very same reel back to the censors. That's more like it, they said, and feeling vindicated and like they had made a difference, they put their stamp of approval on Psycho. I, Zach, did this once accidentally. An editor didn't like certain aspects of my author's note and wanted me to change it. What I wound up doing, I realized later, was just rearranging everything and sending it back with the same content, just in a different order. That's more like it, the editor said. I asked Ted if he's ever done this, to which he replied, yeah, all the time, without missing a beat. The fact is that editors, like most people doing most jobs, sometimes just feel the need to sort of justify their place in the process. Changing something up and tweaking, I realize this may be a poor word choice given the context, a little bit can scratch that itch for them. Do this too much, though, and they'll think that you think they're stupid. Trust me, they're not. 2. The Scorsese 
Another tactic drawn from the world of film is what I call the Scorsese. Martin Scorsese is well known for his extreme imagery, ultra-violent sequences, and envelope pushing. According to some reports, one way he gets so much of this controversial content past the MPAA is to put a bunch of sacrificial lambs into the movie. That is to say, very violent or disturbing scenes he's more than willing to leave on the cutting room floor. In fact, he intends for them to wind up there. In that way, he's seen giving in to the association's demands while still keeping what he really wants. This tactic can work to your advantage with an editor as well. Do you find your long, descriptive passages getting axed? Preload some really long, really purple material that you can lose by way of concession. Is there too much technical stuff? Go full Clancy and describe the model of stapler and just the right wrist technique for effective paper attachment. Oh, fine. If your editor insists, you guess you can murder your darling. Obviously, I'm exaggerating. You do have to be ready to leave these passages in if your editor doesn't bring them up. Some may see this as dishonest, but we disagree. This whole author-editor thing is a dance, a negotiation. And any skilled negotiator knows you start by lowballing, even knowing you'll be paying more in the end. What's more, everyone at the negotiating table expects this. Number three, actually listen. I realize this might be kind of an out-there suggestion, but I've had good luck with it. Let me give an example. In my book, Playing Saint, there's a scene where this grizzled, peshy old priest is taking confession from a young woman and learns that her husband is abusing her. The next time we see him, he's walking with her into her house, and of course the readers can anticipate that something awesome is about to happen, probably involving the priest hitting the guy in the head with an old-school rotary phone, which is, in fact, just what happens. We read... Jeff and Andrea's house was a silent victim of neglect. The large porch leaned to the right, making the front doorway a slightly different shape from the front door. Andrea tried to lead Father Ignatius as quickly as possible down the narrow aisle between cubes of beer cans and garbage bags full of empties. I really don't think this is a good idea, Father. Jeff has a temper. I only want to talk with the lad, Ignatius said. I'll be gentle. She took a deep breath and slid the key into the lock. Jeff sat slumped on the couch, his back to the door, eyes glued to an old television set where a handful of cars continually circled a track. His beer belly betrayed his present sloth, but large tattoo-filled arms suggested a past of military service and automotive work. Did you get my cigarettes? He slurred. No, honey, I was at church. He pulled himself to his feet. Are you kidding me? You forgot my fu- His eyes locked with Ignatius. Give me, father. I didn't know you were there. He sobered instantly, quickly covering the space of the living room and giving Ignatius' hand a firm, friendly pump. Or, at least that's how I initially wrote it. You can probably guess which part my editor had an issue with. I was initially adamant that we leave it in. After all, no one actually swore, it was just implied. And what about realism? Would this sort of guy say, my darn cigarettes? Of course not. Besides, it was a clever-slash-hilarious line. This company's southern earnestness was cramping my Motor City snark. Back and forth we went. Rather than pull the I'm the editor card, she simply told me to take some time to really think about whether I wanted that line in a book with my name on the cover. Which, I guess it is now, but, you know. I took her advice, and you know what? She was right. Not only is it completely unnecessary and undoubtedly a distraction for the average reader of this kind of fiction, but teasing the F-word is unbecoming for a book that is all about the gospel, written by a minister. I couldn't see that at first because I was viewing the whole thing as a war, not a dance. Now, I'm a white Baptist, so I don't dance, but I've seen people doing it, and I can't imagine anything more awkward than one person relentlessly pushing his partner all over the floor with brisk, demanding steps, chugging forward like a freight train. 
In this dance, let the editor lead. Once in a while, you'll need to flex a little bit, but remember, this is a service they're doing for you and for your book. And in return, you're giving them the vast majority of the money people pay for each copy, if you don't factor in that advance. Don't sell yourself or your book short by sabotaging that process. Reading Editorial Subtext Editors, particularly in Christian publishing, are contractually mandated to sound nice at all times. Therefore, you will need this handy guide to decoding the phrases you'll see in emails so you can know what they're actually thinking. Phrase I enjoyed getting to know you through your writing. Actual meaning It would be dishonest to say that I actually enjoyed your book, so this is something that sounds nice without complimenting the book itself. Phrase You have a unique style and voice. Actual meaning I have no idea why on earth our company would contract to do a book with someone who writes like you, and while I can't in good conscience come right out and say that your writing is offensive to me, I'll call it unique, in the same way your mother called your first tattoo unique and expected you to read between the lines. Phrase. Your style is easygoing and conversational. Actual meaning. Clearly you didn't pay attention in school because your writing is sloppy as all hell. Phrase. We want the book to reflect who you are. Actual meaning, we want the book to reflect who we are as a company. Phrase, warmly. Actual meaning, coldly. That's from the Gut Check Guide to Publishing. And you know, I've been getting a few questions from you uh, for a, a future Q&A episode that I may do. Uh, and I'll say the next, uh, let's say three people. Now nah, let's say two. I'm stingy. The next two people uh, who send me a question or two for, for that uh, ep. Uh, I will send you a copy of the Gut Check Guide to Publishing. But for now, let's get back to Trenton Marsh and the little town of Clinch Rock. Previously on Clinch. Fairly steadily, while Jason reached into his hoodie pocket and produced a small round tin, which he pushed discreetly into the middle of the table. It bore the words, Blue Wolf Chewing Tobacco, along with a crude logo. We've all wondered what made that distinctive round imprint in the back pocket of Ed's jeans. And I think we all had our suspicions. Now we know. The two men were walking back through the storeroom when one of them dropped something. It rolled slowly toward Trenton as he crouched there in the shadows behind the stove. The little round object rolled up to Trenton, bumped against his leg, and toppled over. A tin of tobacco. Blue Wolf chewing tobacco. Somehow, Trenton knew he meant it. The cop really was sorry about what had happened, and that was fitting, because Trenton was also sure, absolutely sure, that one of those four men who broke into the home store that morning had been Officer Cash. Clinch, a novel, chapter 12. Quote, Forget this ball of rock. Forget your bank account. Forget the big game on Sunday. Forget your stupid lawn. Forget it all. That's what insane faith looks like. From the Insane Faith Day-by-Day Calendar, 2007, August 18th. Trenton tried to follow his dad's instructions. He watched a few shows on Netflix and scrolled through his Twitter feed, but he was restless. By 10 in the morning, he was back in the secret room, wheeling his desk chair behind him. He studied the big map for a while, then took a picture and printed it out, crossing out each of the buildings that no longer stood, and realizing there was a decent chance the money had been hidden in one of them, but probably not. More than three quarters of them still stood, and he would search all of them. As ready as he had been to give all this up the day before, at the moment he wanted nothing more than to get back out there. He called Judith for the second time that morning, but it went straight to voicemail. Was she ducking his calls? They hadn't parted on the best of terms. Part of him wanted to call Zoe, but he didn't know what to say. 
The more he thought about it, the more convinced he became that Officer Cash was one of the men who had piled into that red truck. So what was Zoe doing with him out at the Ashton Mine? Could he trust her? Was he just being paranoid? Maybe Judith was rubbing off on him. He sat at Walcott's old desk and fired up his laptop, opening tab after tab in an attempt to establish the present value of those two $50 banknotes. More than an hour later, all he knew was that they were called brownbacks and that their value could vary significantly. Just about every site urged him to consult an expert. Tritton searched for antique money expert within 20 miles of his zip code. The closest one was Eagle Coin in the nearby town of Baldwin, about a 20-minute drive away. Should he go? Dad had been pretty clear. Still, he told himself, a pleasant trip to a rare coin shop was pretty much a lateral move from TV and video games, excitement-wise. He texted Jason. Hey man, you up for a road trip? The reply came back almost instantly. Where to? Baldwin, if you can get the minivan, I'll show you something awesome. Five minutes later, Jason replied. Turns out my mom is happy to get rid of me. Who knew? Over in a few. A coin store? Jason demanded. What? I thought you said I was going to see something awesome. They were zipping down US-10 in Mrs. Dufresne's minivan. You drive me to this coin shop and you will. Jason shot him a skeptical look. It's not a coin, is it? No. Well, what then? Just wait. In the meantime, let me tell you what went down today. He related the events of that morning in vivid detail. When he got to the tin of tobacco, Jason practically swerved off the road. You're making this up, he accused. I swear it's true, every word. Oh, I knew that guy was off, but he's the one breaking into all these buildings and ripping them apart? What a nut job! Has your dad arrested him yet? You can't arrest someone for using the same chew as the criminals. Jason pounded the steering wheel. Oh, come on! That's solid evidence. That's the smoking gun, or like the, the smokeless gun. Huh? Don't kid yourself, Trenton said. Brian Green may think Clinch Rock is going to be the Cape Cod of the Great Lakes or whatever, but it's actually just a little town out in the sticks. Lots of people chew. But Blue Wolf? Trenton shrugged. It's circumstantial, if it's even that. Turn here. Jason took a left, and they saw the store immediately. We're not done talking about this, he promised. The shop was small and old-looking. A faded sign bore the words Eagle Coin and Collectibles. A much newer sign, mounted just beneath, announced, We buy gold. The first thing Trenton noticed inside was the security cameras. Three of them. The place was packed with glass display cases, most of them filled with coins, but a few exhibiting pocket watches or various medals and amulets. The man behind the counter, in his late thirties with an enormous hipster beard, narrowed his eyes at them. Can I help you? he asked. I hope so. Trenton reached into a manila envelope and withdrew the two banknotes, setting them on the counter. Are these worth anything? The man gaped for a moment, and then very carefully examined every square inch of both bills, both sides. He then consulted two enormous reference volumes before again inspecting the notes, this time with a magnifying glass. Finally, he set the bills on a black velvet pad and said, The answer is yes. Yes, what? Jason asked. Yes, they're worth something. Trenton laughed, nervously. But how much, though? The man pursed his lips for a moment. If I offered you $500 for the pair, would you take it? Heck yes! Well, that's just stupid. You need to do some real research before you sell these. I don't know what they're worth exactly. I specialize in coins, not paper currency. However, I can tell you a few things. 
these are obsolete notes, so they have no value as legal tender. They're worth whatever someone would pay for them. And at auction, you'd probably get a lot more than 500. Jason punched Trenton in the arm. So when are these auctions? He asked. Never. Not around here. He pointed at one of the notes. This one is probably worth about $85. You could sell it on eBay. But this one, you see that serial number? 1,000, exactly. That's what collectors look for. I wouldn't be surprised if it brought thousands of dollars at a coin and currency show, even more at auction. Thanks for being honest, Trenton said. The man drew himself up. I would never cheat a customer. I love currency far more than I love money. Jason scoffed. Yeah, whatever that means. The man ignored him and said to Trenton, I can't let you two take these out of here, though. Not in that, he indicated the envelope. I'll give you a couple acid-free sleeves on the house. Just promise me you'll get these into the hands of someone who can really appreciate them. Will do, Trenton said. Thanks again. Back on the road, Jason demanded, Where did you get those? Found them. In our basement. You think there's any more? Trenton just shrugged. He was full of excitement at what he'd learned about the bills, but also frustrated that their value was only theoretical at this point. How far would he have to go to get the best price? Grand Rapids? Chicago? One thing he knew for sure, though, if the rest of Cassell's cash was in the form of banknotes like those, it would be worth even more today than it had been back when the Crown Fireboys were willing to torture and kill for it. Probably lots more. Still, he'd have taken $500 now to put in the plate at church, over $5,000 at some undefined future date. Oh, by the way, Jason said, I meant to ask you, how's it going with our favorite 22-year-old hottie? She's not 22. Sure, whatever. You go out with her again? Not yet. He shoved Trenton in his seat. Why not? I thought you were in. Something you're not telling me? Yeah, only about a million things. No, I'm just waiting for the right moment. You mean you're waiting for her to ask you out again? You're going to look like a wuss. Jason had a point. The momentum he enjoyed with Zoe wouldn't last forever. You're right, he said. I'll see if she's free tomorrow night. Los guys are playing at the State Theater. So do it then. What, now? Jason nodded. I'm here to hold you accountable as a non-wuss. Sure, whatever. Trenton brought up the contact for Zoe less than three and hit dial. She answered on the third ring. Hi, Trent. I was wondering when you were going to call. Yeah, sorry, he said. Just been super busy, working everything. Me too. We've got three more displays ready for the museum. You should come over and have a look. But don't worry, I'm saving you the letters from Jeremiah Walcott. Thanks. An awkward pause followed. So, I was kind of calling because tomorrow night is Friday and everything, and this band, Los Guys, is, is playing at the State Theater. Not exactly high art or anything, but sorry, Trent, I already have plans. Dan Barton asked me out. Trenton felt like he was having a stroke. Seriously? I know he's kind of a meathead, but he was sweet in his own way, and he apologized for being a jerk at the skating rink. Besides, I didn't hear from you all day yesterday, so... Oh, no, yeah, no, yeah, it's fine. Some other time. How about tonight? Dinner and a movie? You do have a movie theater here, right? Yeah, it only has three screens, but, uh, yeah, what, what time? How about you come by at five? Absolutely. See you tonight. He hung up to great fanfare from Jason, who high-fived him and called him the man at least half a dozen times. Trenton beamed. Maybe Jason was a decent wingman after all.
Adam Marsh was mixing a packet of powdered creamer into his coffee when he noticed it, right beneath his feet. How long had he been stepping over it completely unaware? Trying not to be obvious, he bent down to retie his shoe and inspected the hardwood floor. No, he wasn't imagining it. Shiny new nail heads in five, no, six floorboards. He stood and took a sip of his coffee, eyeballing the other people in the office. Rich Barton, Tango and Cash, Jesse Finn, Dennis Reed, Sheila Wynn. Adam, you have a call on line one, announced Sheila, their civilian administrator. I'll take it in my office, he said. Shutting the door behind him, he picked up the handset. This is Chief Marsh. You don't call, you don't write. If I didn't know any better, I'd think you'd forgotten me. It was a familiar voice, and it caused all the stress and worry to melt away. Dr. Party, oh, it is good to hear your voice. Oh, it is good to hear your voice, sir. Don't call me sir, it's Jim. Adam laughed. Someday, maybe. So, how's my protege been? Uh, Exhausted would be an understatement. Anything I can help you with? I've got just a little bit of experience with your congregation. Honestly, they're the least of my concerns right now. I mean, yeah, Chet's still a thorn in my side and the money's still tight, but if that were all I had to worry about, he trailed off. Go on, get it off your chest. Adam dropped his voice and walked over to click his door shut. I think something's going on here, Dr. Party, in the department, but I I can't really look into it like I should. I'm spread way too thin. I imagine you are. And, and if, I, if I stop even for a second, I feel like I'm dropping the ball. Actually, I feel like that all the time. I'm not there enough as a cop or as a pastor or as a father. I'm nearly enough as a student. I'm in danger of failing two of my four classes. I just, I just don't know how much longer I can keep this up. He was surprised by how good it felt to just say all of that out loud. Well, my offer still stands the old preacher said. I'll gladly come back for a while as an interim, give you a break, and get them ready to fully support you. I bet I could even turn Bushman in your favor. No, I won't hear of it. You stay at the lake house. You deserve it. Dr. Party seemed to think for a moment before saying, So, what you're telling me is that I deserve rest and enjoyment, but you can't even have a moment of downtime or you feel guilty? Where do you suppose this is coming from? It's different with you, Adam said. You've earned it. You're retired. Adam, you don't earn rest. Jesus earned it for us. It's over. It's done. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will... I know. Then say it. I will give you rest. Those are the words you need to follow, son. He paused, as if waiting for Adam to say something. When he didn't, Dr. Party added, I know how much you love that book... I thought it was challenging, too, and and profitable, and I'm glad it made you revisit your priorities, but maybe you should give all this insane faith stuff a rest. You're going overboard. Overboard is the whole point. Is it? Even the Lord Jesus stopped to rest. Tell me, are you taking a Sabbath day? No, he admitted. Something to think about. Look, it sounds like you're pushed for time, so I'll let you go. I just wanted to tell you I'm heading your way in a couple weeks. Why don't we get together? I'd really like that, Dr. Party. All right, then. And I don't want to find you burned out. Take some time for rest, all right? I'll try. There is no try. Do, he said, in a bad impression of Yoda. Adam laughed. I'll try. All right, then. See you soon. Adam hung up the phone, realizing that he'd just lied to his mentor.
Trenton felt almost at ease walking up to Zoe's door that night. It was his third time there this week, and it was beginning to feel familiar in a good way. Of course, he was mildly aware of the quarantined zone in the back of his brain where he'd isolated thoughts of John Cash, the silver mine, and Zoe's impending date with Dan Barton, but that was a necessity. Brian answered the door, greeting him with a smile and a warm handshake. Come on in. Zoe's almost ready. Trenton entered the parlor and immediately noticed the three new displays standing next to the picture of Wolcott and Cassell. What do you think? Brian asked. They were all photos of lumberjacks, felling trees, smoking pipes, sharing a meal, with lots of text. They look great. Glad you approve. They both surveyed the displays for a moment before Brian added, Zoe tells me you're going to see a film tonight. Uh, yeah, uh, that Johnny Depp one where he's a spy, but he doesn't know it. Hmm, I don't think I've heard of it, Trenton shrugged. Let me get your opinion on something else, Brian said, walking over to the card table in the corner, now covered with even more photos and papers. He picked up a typed page and handed it to Trenton. It contained two handwritten columns of text. Trenton read, Cassell Heights, Cassell Springs, Mill Creek, Mill Run, Mill Valley, Oak Valley, Pine Valley, Pine Meadow. It went on and on. What's this? Trenton, as we've been working with the town council to rebrand Clinch Rock, we've come to believe that the town's name is standing in our way. Not only do people associate the name with obscurity rather than desirability, the name itself is kind of ugly. Both of the words Clinch and Rock sound harsh. At first, we thought maybe just a new logo for the town to kind of soften the name, but now we're toying with the idea of changing it altogether. Can you do that? Well... I can't, but I can recommend a simple vote of the town council, which could put it on the ballot. I mean, this great state is full of beautiful-sounding Indian names like Mackinac and Petoskey, or descriptive, evocative names like Harbor Springs or Birch Run. They make people want to visit. Even some of the now-defunct lumber towns like, like Sini, best known for a bloody tavern fight and that Hemingway poem about a fire, have a pleasant ring to them. Scenic Sini. I picture a quaint bed and breakfast. Trent had no idea what to say. His gut reaction was to leave the town name alone, but what did he know about this stuff? Sorry to keep you waiting, Trenton, Zoe said, descending the stairs. She looked amazing, glamorous, wearing the red dress she'd worn at camp. Trent suddenly felt underdressed, not only in his khakis and t-shirt, but in his own skin. No problem, he managed to say. You kids have fun, Brian called, turning his attention back to the stack of pictures on the coffee table. At the car, Trenton opened Zoe's door for her, even though she was driving, because it seemed the thing to do. She laughed at the gesture, but said thank you all the same. As they pulled out of the driveway, she asked, Mind if I show you something before dinner? Sure. She smiled broadly. I love how you're game for anything, Trenton. And kissed him on the cheek, adding, You're going to love this. They headed away from downtown, then turned onto a county road leading east. A few minutes later, Trenton said, I think I know where you're taking me. Oh, you've been here before? Yeah, they brought our class out to the lumber camp in third grade. She laughed quietly. I think you'll be surprised at how much it's changed. They turned into a long, unpaved drive, which cut through dense forest, curving this way and that for half a mile. When they emerged from the trees, Zoe gestured grandly. What do you think? Wow! Did you guys build all this? We oversaw it. Come on, let me show you around. Trenton got out of the car and approached four newly reconstructed buildings. They were rustic, made of unfinished pine. This is amazing, he said. On an impulse, he added, 
total opposite of that, like bombed out copper mine. You ever been there? She shook her head. Nope, not yet. Trent felt his mood dive bomb. How could she lie to him so easily? Like an excited child, she led him over to a building labeled Bunkhouse One. So we're going to have a whole presentation put together, taking visitors through an average day at a lumber camp. She straightened her back and adopted a tour guide tone. The men would sleep in tight quarters, filed into three small bunkhouses. At 3 a.m., the camp cook would rise and begin preparing breakfast, which would be on the table by 5. Trenton couldn't imagine starting work at 5 each morning. Once had almost killed him. Zoe continued, Most lumberjacks led rather sad lives, working 12-hour days, wrecking their bodies, slowly getting behind to the company store, and even though the lumber companies were incredibly wealthy, they squeezed these men, pinched every penny, and stretched every resource. I think a good metaphor is the sawmill, where the lumber was taken by river. They burned the scraps and sawdust from one board to create the steam to cut the next one. Of course, once in a while, the whole thing might explode. Trenton thought of his dad, also working insane hours, getting behind in every way, feeding the fire with scraps, and in danger of blowing up or flaming out. Speaking of which, Zoe went on, the lumberjacks had to eat in absolute silence. No talking at meals, no drinking in the camp, no fighting in the camp. And so, whenever they had leave, they got a reputation for raising hell. But if they didn't cut loose once in a while, they'd probably explode. She let out a practiced laugh. Trenton realized she was definitely reciting a memorized script and resisted the urge to ask how often they had such a leave. Oh, wait, she said, giving her head a little shake. I was supposed to take you into the mess hall to show you where they ate. They entered a narrow building, which was empty save for a few informative placards piled against one wall and a long-handled implement mounted on another. Trenton gawked. Why do you have an ox goad in here? He studied this item, which looked almost exactly like one of the pictures he'd seen online. She chuckled. That's actually called a peavy. It was used for floating logs down the river. Any other questions? She giggled. This is kind of fun. Yeah, was there like a central fire where they all gathered? After all, this place was on their list and not on Walcott's map. Zoe thought for a moment. Not really. There would have been wood-burning cast-iron stoves in the bunkhouses, and of course the cook's range here in the mess hall. We have reproductions being made. We're expecting them next week. They continued the impromptu tour for a good half hour, Zoe walking him through a day in a lumberjack's life, while Trenton eyed each and every possible fire beneath which he planned to search for the money as soon as possible, compiling a mental list. Finally, she said, I guess that's about it. She sighed contentedly. You know, there's something special about Clinch Rock. A lot of these old lumber towns have long since become ghost towns, dead and gone. But this one's just sleeping. What do you mean, sleeping? Trent asked. I mean, we just need to wake it up. But isn't the sleepiness part of the charm? She half shrugged. I suppose, but really, what's the point of a town like this? I mean, the way it's been lately. My father and I have a vision for a vibrant business district, tourism industry, maybe some vineyards in the area, a revitalized downtown full of galleries, upscale shops. Trust me, you won't even recognize it. Somehow, it sounded like a threat to Trenton. Back in Clinch Rock, they were walking hand-in-hand down Main Street toward the movie theater when they came face-to-face -face with Dan Barton and his motley crew of lesser jocks. Hey, Zoe he said, flashing his stupid, perfect white teeth. Hello. She was polite, but not flirty. Trenton picked up the pace. As they passed through the sea of muscle heads, Barton said, I got a great night lined up for us tomorrow. 
You'll probably forget all about whatever lame thing you guys are doing right now. Without thinking, Trenton released Zoe's hand and stepped right up into Dan's face. He felt oddly courageous, invincible even. Maybe it was what he'd been through that morning. Barton might be tough, but he was nothing compared to four grown men breaking into buildings, threatening to bash each other's heads in. At any rate, before he knew it, Trenton was looking up about an inch into the eyes of his nemesis, saying, I am so sick of you and your crap. Barton smirked. You trying to show off for the lady, Marsh? Because you're not going to impress her by getting your head knocked off. Zoe grabbed Trenton by the hand and pulled. Neither of you is going to impress me by acting like little boys. Come on, Trenton. I want to look at this vintage dress in here. It's cute. What do you think? Trenton allowed himself to be led away. You're right, Zoe. He's not worth it. How about I buy you the dress? He threw a contemptuous look back at Dan as they walked away. Only as he followed her through the entrance to rerun did he realize his miscalculation. Actually, Zoe, uh, we might want to go get our tickets now so we don't miss the previews. She looked at the stylish watch on her wrist. Nonsense. We've got all sorts of time. She moved from the dress in the window to flipping through various clothes on a garment rack. How have I not been in here? She said absently, taking in the old tin ceilings and exposed brick. It's a fabulous building. Just needs some work. Trenton glanced at the counter, where a large cardboard sign propped against the antique cash register read, Please don't steal anything. Karma's watching, and she's kind of a... Beneath which was a drawing of an angry-looking cartoon pit bull wearing a tutu. Trent knew this meant whoever was working that night, either Brooke Yannick or Judith, had stepped out to the bathroom or for a smoke or a bite to eat. He was on borrowed time, and he did not want his date with Zoe to collide with Judith, especially not if she was still mad at him. You want that dress? He asked, practically assaulting the mannequin wearing it. I'll get it for you. We'll have them set it aside, so... No, it's too big. And it's a little dingy, not worth having it altered. Okay, but let's... You! It was Judith's voice from the back of the store, and it was full of righteous anger. Trenton closed his eyes and cursed his luck. Excuse me? Zoe said. Judith stormed up to her, a folded paper in her hand. You had a hand in this, right? She demanded. It says Town of Clinch Rock on the letterhead, but you and your father are the consultants it keeps mentioning. Tell me I'm wrong. What is that? Trenton asked. Oh, you mean you don't know what your little girlfriend's up to? Judith said, her voice rising. Well, let's see. She flicked the paper open and read, Guidelines for downtown businesses in a rebooted Clinch Rock. Remove all hand-lettered signage and replace with professional, stylish, and tasteful signage. Businesses must keep consistent hours rather than being open by appointment. Oh, and my favorite, businesses must present themselves in keeping with the sort of tourist destination that Clinch Rock strives to be. Trenton tried for a consoling tone. Judith, they're just suggestions. Actually, Zoe said, that's not entirely true. These requirements will soon be reflected in zoning regulations and city ordinances. It's for the good of the town. That seems sort of messed up, Trenton said. Oh, that's not even the worst part, Judith wailed. They want to rename the town. It says the current name sounds unpleasant and uncomfortable. There's a whole list of possibilities here. She waited for Trent's reaction. Wait, you knew? He shrugged. I don't think it's necessary, but why not let the people vote on it? Zoe sighed, annoyed. Judith, it's an ugly sound. Clinch rock? It makes me feel like I'm squeezing a jagged stone in my fist. We can do better. We? Judith laughed mirthlessly. How long have you lived here? Two weeks? There's no we. She stalked over to a shelf of used books and grabbed an old dictionary. You're not even thinking of the right word. It's not clench. It's clinch. Clinch rock. She flipped through the C's, settling on the right page. 
Definition 1. To settle a matter decisively, as in, this stupid list clinches it for me. You should move back where you came from. Trenton grimaced. Judith, let's not say things we... Definition 2, she continued. To fasten by beating down a protruding end. Yes, yes, Zoe said, unamused. I'm sure you want to clinch my... Definition 3. To hold fast, as in a passionate lover's embrace. Maybe that sounds unpleasant and uncomfortable to a robot like you, but we like it just fine. Are you quite done? Zoe asked. No, they missed one. Definition four. It's also a wrestling term. Zoe rolled her eyes. Well, Judith, most ladies don't know anything about wrestling. Well, let me show you then. For a moment, Trenton thought she was going to tackle Zoe, which brought on a flood of confusing and conflicting feelings, but instead she gripped Trenton around the neck with her left hand and grabbed his bicep with the other. Do the same to me, she said. For some reason, he complied, entering a wrestling position, their foreheads pressing together. She smelled like grapefruit, some kind of lotion or hair product. This is how you start a wrestling match, grappling, in a clinch. Like you greens in our town. Right now, you feel like you're about to take this town to the mat, but you're not. He knew it was wildly inappropriate, but Trent couldn't focus on anything but the citrus smell and how close their faces were. This felt an awful lot like definition three. But watch this, she said. Suddenly, Trenton was upside down, his legs flying in an arc through the air. He collided roughly with the hardwood floor, then felt Judith's upper body land on his, perpendicular to him, pinning him down. You see? I just clinched the situation. Decisively. The bell above the door jingled as if to confirm the pin, and Trenton realized he was lying beneath his best friend in a public place while who knows who just walked in. Let me up, he said. Judith rolled off him. I guess I scared her away. Trenton looked around. Zoe was gone. I tried to warn you about her, Trent. She's no good for you. Shut up, Judith! He pulled himself off the floor and blasted out the door after Zoe, just in time to see her disappearing into her car. Zoe, just wait! He shouted. She turned down to Bobish and disappeared. Doesn't look good, Barton called from outside Coney Heaven across the street. Stick with the bag lady, Marsh. She's more your style. Trenton ignored him and started the walk home. On the way, he tried calling Zoe three times, only to have it go right to voicemail each time. Stupid Barton. And Judith. What was she thinking with that stunt? And what was he thinking, playing along, letting her pull him into her crazy world yet again? Actually, what had he been thinking? Whatever it was, it had to be laid to rest. She was nuts, after all. The opposite of Zoe in so many ways. The opposite of Zoe. Which meant Zoe was the opposite of Judith. The opposite of his best friend. There were only three vehicles parked behind Max Roadhouse. One of them was Coach Fisher's 2017 Silverado truck. Judith hung back beneath the canopy of a white pine. Actually, it wasn't Judith. It was Angelus, the guardian angel of Clinch Rock. She had decided the night before to assume the name Angelos when Trent's dad lay that Greek word on the Scrabble board. After all, Angel and Archangel had both been claimed by the same Marvel Comics character, actually, and Guardian Angel by an obscure DC hero, so Angelos it was. But then she'd decided that Latin was better than Greek in this case, more hardcore, leading her to the word Angelus, also the name of a prayer which she found on YouTube being chanted in haunting Latin with church bells behind it, very noir. She was not in full costume, but close enough. 
She had the wings on her upper arms, of course, plus the mask, boots, leggings, and an armored leather vest she'd made from a biking shirt and some weird bondage corset thing that came into rerun, now spray-painted blue. She'd put them together while listening to Depeche Mode, seeing herself in some Molly Ringwald movie montage. In lieu of a wig, she wore her hair up in a blue-knit cap. This would be something of a test run, she'd decided. Everyone knew where to find Coach Fisher. Friday nights, he'd be at the skating rink, keeping an eye on his wrestlers and, creepily, on many of the cheerleaders. All other nights, it was a safe bet he'd be here, at Clinch Rock's only sports bar. Or, as she now knew, maybe home, getting rough with his wife. Angelus swung her weapon back and forth beneath the broad pine branches, savoring the roar it made as it cut through the air. If Fisher came out with somebody else, she'd follow behind on the iron horse stashed nearby. But if he was alone... Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel. Copyright 2017, Gutcheck Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at zach at zacharybartles.com, that's Zach with an H, like God intended, or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Good. Check.